0: Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10 minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist,
1: Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Well, it's been almost a year since our last shipwreck mystery. Steve, you ready for another one? Oh,
0: yes. Good. I was hoping this would come up soon.
1: Well, you know most shipwrecks are attributed to bad weather, and Lake Erie has an unequaled reputation when it comes to swallowing ships in a storm. Its average depth is just 62 feet. That's a six-story building. Yeah, I think we talked about that this is the reason why it's so... Why, it's so dangerous. Because when a lake is that shallow, even mediocre winds can whip up waves where a deeper lake would simply absorb the movement. Now, and I know I told you this before, some experts say this has contributed to Lake Erie consuming more than 1,500 commercial vessels and thousands of travelers in the past 300 years, making it the most dense collection of shipwrecks Anywhere on Earth. I remember when you told me that the first time, and I'm still blown away every time I you bring it up. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. This one is even crazier because this ship is going to disappear on a calm December day when the tug Cornell and a crew of eight men sailed away under partly sunny skies and fair winds and never showed up at its destination. It was four days before Christmas, December 21, 1922, when the crew arrived at the Cleveland Port to board the boat for an overnight trip to Buffalo, New York. The steam-powered tug usually had four working it, a captain, an engineer, and a couple of firemen on the boilers. But they were taking a second crew with them to Buffalo because this was a long trip for a tug. You know, tugs usually stay in the harbor and just move ships around. I was going to say, it's not real far, but for a tugboat. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So they needed two shifts. So making this trip were two captains, Edward Kemet and Harry Brault, engineers William Mantell and William Gleason, and firemen Michael Paytosh, Thomas Hewitt, Charles Christ, and John Siders, all of them from Cleveland. There was almost a ninth soul on board. Michael Paytosh's father, John, had planned to travel with his son, "'But he became ill and decided to stay home that morning. "'It was a Thursday, and engineer William Mantell, "'he had spent most of Wednesday evening "'helping with the final preparations for the trip "'because the tug hadn't been used in over a year, "'and it had just been sold.' A small leak was found in the firebox, but it was discovered and repaired. I mean, it was a rather common type of leak, nothing that was especially dangerous and very easily fixed. And even though the boat had been in dry dock for many months, Captain Thomas Gold, U.S. Inspector of Hulls, would confirm it had been given a thorough inspection at the end of the summer. No defects were found, and it had been pronounced seaworthy. The tug was a wooden vessel, 72 feet long with a single smokestack. It was built in Buffalo, New York in 1888 to withstand the rigors of the Great Lakes. Back then, it was called the Grace Danforth, and it began its duty moving ships around the busy harbor and sometimes even assisting in breaking ice at the beginning of a new shipping season. The tug spent part of its life at Port Huron, Michigan, and by 1909, the tug was out of date. It was time for a makeover. The boat was reconstructed and rechristened the Cornell. The Cornell had many good years left, and in 1917, it was moved to the Cleveland port. But in 1921, the aging boat was removed from service. Now 34 years old, the tug was going to another new home to serve a new purpose. The Syracuse Sand Company, out of Syracuse, New York, intended to use it on the New York State Barge Canal. And on December 21, 1922, Captain Kemet was to sail the tug to Buffalo and the mouth of the canal so that the representatives of the Syracuse Sand Company could take possession. Mid afternoon on Thursday, Tug Cornell pulled away from Cleveland, belching its black smoke as it sailed over the harbor breakwaters, reaching the placid surface of the Smooth Lake, and it began its 180-mile trip east. Later that night, about 8:30, the crew of the tug Charles A Potter thought they saw her. "'She was chugging away, uneventfully, about three miles off the shore "'between Ashtabula and Conneat. "'That was about a third of the way to her destination. "'If that was the Tug Cornell, it was the last anyone ever saw of her.'" When she didn't arrive in Buffalo Friday morning, there was some anxiety, but it was decided to give her time to come in. Maybe she had hit a patch of bad weather and had taken shelter in another port, or maybe ice flows had slowed her down. But by Saturday morning, there were no more excuses to be found. A search was launched. Over the next several days, through Christmas, more than a dozen craft joined the hunt the tug lutz left from cleveland and the tug tennessee launched from buffalo covering the water that the cornell would have traveled the tennessee it was said even made a record run of eight hours between cleveland and buffalo rushing in case there were survivors in the frigid waters well during the day the temperatures were in the mid-30s cold enough but at night they dipped below freezing making the search harder, a fog had rolled in. They could find no trace of her, no wreckage, no bodies, nothing to even hint at the mystery of her disappearance. Other tugs that joined the hunt included the Gilmore, which searched in the area of Erie, Pennsylvania, and the tug Oregon, which focused in the area of Fairport. Ice building up in Lake Erie had already sent many ships into winter hibernation, but there were a few still getting a final trip or two in before the season closed, and they played their part. The steamers Philip Metz, the City of Bangor, and C.B. Nineber were among those who reported in after traveling the routes between Cleveland and Buffalo, saying they had kept a watch out for the tug, but saw nothing to give away her position. Again, however, they pointed out that fog had severely limited their visibility. The Great Lakes Towing Company made a public plea for pilots, especially anyone owning a water plane. The company had followed a tip that led to such a plane owned by Frank Goodyear and Buffalo, but a visit to him revealed the plane was disassembled. Finally, once the heavy fog had lifted, H.B. Shaver, superintendent of a U.S. airmail field in Cleveland, got approval to send three mail planes over the route. The day after Christmas, a dozen speedy boats from U.S. Coast Guard stations joined the small armada, looking for the Cornell by piloting a zigzag course along the shore while allowing the tugs to cover a swath 30 miles wide further out to sea. By now, most assumed the tug had gone under and taken her crew to a watery grave. And while the big question of why was still unanswered, there were not many possibilities. I mean, the tug had a lifeboat equipped to handle the crew of eight. If the boat had sustained some sort of leak, the men would have had plenty of time to abandon her. No, more likely, it was taken by something sudden, something the crew couldn't escape like a boiler explosion. On December 27, Lake Erie gave up its first evidence of the Tug Cornell. So this is uh, five days after departing? Yes, that was five days. It was 10 a.m., and the crew of the Tug Gilmore, which had been searching for the Cornell since she was lost, was working her way home along the Canadian shore when she sighted a yawl. It was bobbing in the water, 25 miles offshore, not far from Port Colborne. That port is east of Buffalo, but on the north side of the lake. They picked up the yawl and found inside the body of Mike Petosh, one of the Cornell's firemen, and the son of the man who had missed sharing his fate because he'd taken ill the day of the run. Pytosh's body was lightly clad. It was telling that he hadn't had time to dress properly before leaving the ship. He was covered with ice and frozen face down to the planks of the lifeboat's bottom. Part of the ship had to be sawed off to free his body. The crew that found the body thought they had solved the mystery of why. Pytosh's face looked scalded, even burned. But after the body was taken to the port of Erie, Pennsylvania, the coroner there ruled that Peytosh had not been burned. The bruised look of the face was the result of long exposure to the bitter cold. I was going to
0: say, you know, you look at those people coming down from Mount Everest and they look like they've been beaten up and burned.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it makes me think maybe he had been alive for some time Mm -hmm. to sustain that. Captain Philip Broderick, manager of the Great Lakes Towing Company, was still convinced the boiler was the culprit. I hardly think the Cornell caught fire or that she ran into weather rough enough to cause it to founder, he said. If the boat was burning or suffered a crushing blow by an ice floe, the crew would have had time to escape into the lifeboat. But an explosion was another matter and Paytosh was the only one that could get to the boat. Those who knew the crew said he was the strongest and fittest among them and might have been the only one capable of surviving a frigid dip in the lake and still be able to pull himself up and into the boat. I am sure that Paytosh jumped overboard and that the small boat was adrift when he clambered into it, Captain Broderick theorized. As for the rest, he guessed the ship sank so fast it took the rest of the crew with it. Two days after Petash's body was found, on December 28, there was an exciting development. Two of the airmail pilots reported seeing what appeared to be the hull of a boat. It was five miles east of Erie, Pennsylvania, and a half mile from shore. They were flying about 300 feet above the surface when they saw what looked like boilers and machinery. Everything looked black, as if it had burned. The sighting made the news, and everyone held a collective breath. The Great Lakes Towing Company sent one of its tugs to explore the site, But it wasn't the Cornell. It turned out to be a Canadian boat that sunk several years earlier. The next day, December 29, eight days after the Cornell had disappeared, the decision was made to abandon the search. The announcement was made under newspaper headlines that said Lake Erie alone can solve this mystery. Winter was in full swing now. If Lake Erie was willing to give up anything more, it would have to wait until spring. It wouldn't take quite that long, though, for the next and final find related to the missing boat. On February 8, 1923, two boys decided to go skating on the frozen shore of Lake Erie near Dunkirk, New York, just west of Buffalo. They spotted a human hand protruding from the ice. Authorities responded and found the body of Thomas Hewitt, the 55-year-old fireman of the Cornell. They chopped him from his icy grave. He was dressed in overalls and wore a life preserver. To this day, no other crew, nor the tug itself, was ever found. And while an unofficial investigation theorized that a fire had burned the tug, the cause of its demise is still a mystery. What
0: I find interesting is the shipwrecks that happened kind of closer to the United States, you always find the debris over in Canada, and like like the Marquette Busmer.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then they found a Canadian ship over there by the american side that's right rarely does the wind flow south to north but it does happen right. so i imagine if something happens when that's happening you could get a canadian ship found or you know floating over to this side but right. most of the time we're gonna work our way over to work
0: canada. our way over to canada right all right well that's it for our midweek 10 minute mystery we'll see you here sunday for our next regular full-size ohio mystery episode in the meantime enjoy the rest of your week And may all of your mysteries have happy endings. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot